You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. All right, so I've gotten the notice that uh, the recording has begun. So first of all, I want to welcome everyone to uh, day two of uh, the annual Apostolic Joanite Church Conclave. Uh, once again presented online, uh, so we won't be able to to have the uh, festivities and and camaraderie that we often have uh, when we're able to meet in person. But uh, nonetheless, I know that for me, this is always the huge uh, sort of recharge for my spiritual life. Just the the opportunity to uh, to see old faces and and. And once again, to, to see so many new faces, uh, it's wonderful to, um, uh, to, to uh, see people who uh, are joining us for the first time. So welcome to, uh, to everyone. Um, today, our first presentation is uh, our keynote for uh, the weekend. Uh, so I want you to give a warm welcome to uh, Dr. James F. McGrath, uh, who's currently the Clarence Godwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature at Butler University in Indianapolis. Uh, he received uh, his Diploma in Religious Studies from Cambridge, uh, BG uh, from University of London, and his PhD from Durham. He is the author of John's Apologetic Christianity, uh, Christology, excuse me, The Only True God, Theology and Science Fiction and the burial of Jesus, as well as uh, collaborating with uh, Charles Habrell of uh, Rutgers University, the two-volume Mandean Book of John, the critical edition, translation, and commentary, and is the author of numerous articles and, in fact, a few science fiction short stories, and editor and co-editor of uh, a number of scholarly volumes. So uh, once again, I want you to give a warm welcome to uh, Dr. McGrath, and uh, he's going to be speaking on John the Baptist and the Mendean. So with that, I will turn it over to Dr. McGrath. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for that uh, delightfully warm welcome uh, and for the interesting banter uh, in advance of uh, starting today's session, uh, which uh, is always useful getting to getting to know a community uh, by what gets uh, chatted about in the moments before things get started. Uh, so let me just say a couple of things by way of introduction uh, before I start the talk proper. Uh, and let me also uh, try to share screen and see if that will work smoothly. So if I do that, uh, does that show, do people see the PowerPoint? Yep, yep that's good. good. Work yep. Great. Okay, well that should uh, hopefully work. And so talking about John the Baptist seemed appropriate because this is, after all, uh, the Apostolic Johannite Church. And I don't think there is any other religious organization, at least a, one that calls itself a church, I'll say more about that in a moment, that emphasizes the legacy of John the Baptist in quite the way the Johannite Church does. And so it seemed like a particularly welcome uh, invitation, given that 
I am at the start of a year-long project, which I've already been dabbling in, and you'll see some of the results of that uh, today. But I am at the start of a year-long sabbatical when I will be uh, working on at least one book, and maybe more than one, on John the Baptist, uh, focusing first and foremost on uh, trying to elucidate him as a historical figure, but also interested in his, uh, his wider impact uh, down the ages. And so I really have moved from uh, starting out in New Testament study on the Johns that gets mentioned uh, and highlighted in the uh, introduction and statement of principles on the uh, Apostolic Johannite Church's uh, website. I started out working on the Gospel of John and its depiction of Jesus. I came to the study of New Testament, uh, as many people do, by way of uh, interest in exploring my own faith and had spent some time in a fairly conservative context that had given me the impression that all the Gospels in the New Testament, right, they're all part of the same scripture. They really ought to be saying more or less the same thing. And it didn't take more than a course on the Gospel of John to disabuse me of that idea. And so figuring out why they were different uh, became rather important to me. And when you work on the Gospel of John uh, in depth as an academic, you inevitably encounter the Mandaeans because they were uh, of great interest to scholars working on the Gospel of John uh, in the first half of the 20th century in particular, but they've ceased to be of such interest. And I'll explain a bit more about why and we'll connect that with the project that I'm going to be talking about. But I've journeyed from interest in the depiction of Jesus in the Gospel of John and how that relates to the Jesus of history and the development of Christian doctrine and things like that, to the historical Jesus as a major focus. And yes, I have dabbled in uh, science fiction and religion and a number of other things as well, to turning my attention now to John the Baptist. And before doing that, uh, having spent some time working on a critical edition and translation, first ever scholarly translation into English of one of the major uh, Mandaean texts. Now, if you haven't heard of the Mandaeans, I'll say a little bit more about them. I suspect that as a, a group that uh, holds John the Baptist in such high esteem, uh, they will be familiar to at least many of you, but I'll say a bit more about them. But John the Baptist has really grabbed my interest uh, because of uh, a number of things that I've been studying recently, uh, including what Jesus learned from women, uh, that was the title of a recent book of mine. And let me just quickly put in the chat here, uh, if I can. I, I may need to uh, get out of the slideshow for a second in order to, where's the, Yeah, I have too many screens open uh, in order to try to share everything that I've got going on. And so it's, I don't think it's going to let me do that. But there is an open access uh, edition of the Mendian Book of John online, which I'll direct you to. And also want to mention my recent book, What Jesus Learned from Women. And so as I was being interviewed about the book, somebody asked me, I think jokingly, so what's next? What Jesus Learned from Men? And I said, well, actually, kind of, uh, because I was planning on working on John the Baptist. And while this is often denied or played down 
in many uh, churches, particularly conservative churches, uh, Jesus does seem to have been part of John's movement. Uh, he may have been, we might want to put it in terms of him having been John's disciple. Uh, John is his mentor and teacher. And so it's a natural next step to move on to this subject. And so being interested in history, and having mentioned a little bit about my own religious journey that took me to the academic study of religion, which challenged many of the things that I assumed that had led me to study it in the first place. Uh, let me mention the question of what it is that historians do and what I'm going to be doing uh, related to John the Baptist, because hopefully that will make uh, provide some framework for uh, the brief overview of some of the interesting conclusions I've already started to draw and possibilities I've started to explore, which I'll talk about today. So. Many of you will have had the experience either yourselves or uh, encountering other people who have a traditionalist sort of approach to religion, which simply accepts at face value the historicity of what sacred texts say. Uh, some of you will have moved beyond that and perhaps the pendulum will have swung the other way so that you either ignore history or just say history doesn't matter or uh, none of it's literally true, but it's true in some other ways. Uh, historians, on the other hand, try to find that nuanced middle ground, try to recognize that sometimes in a text, you may have a mixture of fact, fiction, uh, symbolism, and that there's a spectrum there. Right? And as somebody for whom the pendulum did swing from one end to the other, uh, I've been trying of late to find that middle ground where I'm uh, open to but equally open to the possibility of things not being historical and things being historical. And that becomes particularly relevant when we turn our attention to things like the stories about John's uh, childhood and infancy, which most New Testament scholars view as uh, mostly or entirely legendary and with good reason. But I'm going to suggest today that maybe that legend and some of the symbolic narrative is woven based on some things that might actually have been true of John. And if they were, and if we put some of those pieces together, they may help us to understand him better, what he emphasized. And for this particular audience, perhaps most interesting, his connection with Gnosticism, because many people are not aware that uh, those who try to trace the origins of Gnosticism often do so uh, two figures named uh, Dositheus and Simon Magus uh, from Samaria, who were associated with John's movement. And that's something that's really rather intriguing. So let me say a little bit more about the Mandaeans. Uh, they are, in essence, a Gnostic religion that has survived from ancient times to the present. Uh, there are a number of Gnostic groups in the present day, obviously, uh, including yourselves. But uh, this one really does stand out simply because of its antiquity. Uh, tracing exactly how far back it goes is challenging, to say the least. But that they are ancient is absolutely clear. They practice baptism, immersion in flowing water, in Aramaic living water, as their central ritual. And I encourage you to get on YouTube. Uh, maybe not right now, uh, but if you can't uh, restrain your curiosity and really want to see a Mandaean baptism immediately, uh, feel free, but make sure you're muted because otherwise we'll, we'll hear the Mandaean baptism while I'm speaking. But do take a look at that. 
Uh, they hold John the Baptist in high esteem. They're not so fond of Jesus. And so it's a fascinating religious tradition in that regard, right? It's a really unusual configuration. And they view him as one of their own, as a, as a Mandaean himself, as a proponent of their religion. Uh, not their founder, because they view them, their religion as going back to sort of the patriarchs, to Adam and Seth, uh, just like other Gnostics do. But they view John as a key figure uh, in certain respects. Their sacred texts are fascinating. They're in a dialect of Aramaic, and they're written in a distinctive script. And I want to share this picture uh, taken when I visited a Mandaean family in Australia. And they showed me one of the copies that they had of a text known as Doan Abatur, uh, which not only tells of sort of the purgatories that the soul might pass through in the afterlife, but actually depicts uh, the depicts the journey. Uh, and the, you can see even in this uh, picture from a distance, just how fascinatingly illustrated and distinctively illustrated these scrolls are. And so that's also something you might want to look into if you find the Mandaeans at all interesting. And who, let's be honest, who doesn't find the Mandaeans interesting? So what can we say about John the Baptist? And I'm going to say a little bit about him in general and some of the things that I think are distinctive proposals I'm making related to uh, this book project that I think will help us understand where he comes up from this, dis, uh, comes up with this distinctive ritual that he's famous for. Right? If he was simply practicing the immersion rituals that other people in his time were practicing, uh, immersion for ritual purity purposes, then he probably wouldn't be nicknamed John the Baptist, right? If someone is a Baptist in the modern sense and they go to a Baptist church and most of the people in their community are Baptists, then they're not going to be nicknamed John the Baptist or James the Baptist. Uh, that his immersion was something distinctive and that set him apart uh, seems to be a given. And so going to be looking at him. And here, I just wanted to put side by side this picture of John the Baptist, as he's often depicted in art, holding a crossbeam with sort of a, a banner draping from it. And that is, in fact, not unlike a traditional Mandaean symbol. Uh, the cross beam looks important to Christians because the cross is the historic symbol of Christianity. But for Mandaeans, that's just something to hold the banner. And it's the banner that is the, the symbol. And so as I've looked at this project and started digging into it, I couldn't help but wonder whether artists historically may have been aware of Mandaeans and uh, incorporated something about them into their art. Uh, one way or another, the convergence of images there is, is certainly intriguing. So what do our sources say? What can we say about John? Uh, how do we balance being skeptical and uh, being open to the possibility that there's some truth in these sources? Well, let me focus in on one of the things that we're told in both Mandaean sources and in the Gospel of Luke, which is that John's father was named Zechariah and he was a priest. And one who immediately set that side by side with the information we get from a number of early Christian sources that John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what priests did in the temple, offering animal sacrifice was for the forgiveness of sins. And so John seems to be offering something that is at least an alternative to that. 
and perhaps a challenge to it. And so this is an interesting scenario, right? It's not simply a case of a, a son who doesn't go into his father's business, uh, as it were. He opens a competing franchise. And that's interesting, right? And it's one of those cases where we really want to know what's the backstory, right? Um, having issues with one's father uh, is not unique to John, uh, if that's what was the case. But what can we figure out about what might have put him at odds with his father to the extent that he not only would fail to follow in his father's footsteps and become a priest himself, but actually chart a course, pursue a vocation that offered an alternative, one that, if it was widely embraced, might actually spell downfall for the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood. I think an important clue to how John ends up with the rather distinctive uh, views that he does and the outlook that he does requires us to take a look at a certain detail in the infancy story about him and then to pick up on echoes of stories from the Jewish scriptures, right, which were also the scriptures of the early Christians and the scriptures that John and his entourage would have been familiar with. Let's take a look at this. So I won't read the story, but for those of you who are uh, perhaps less familiar with it, uh, you might want to take a look at the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which tells the story of Zechariah, the priest, and Elizabeth, and says that they were childless. And this is a recurring motif in scripture. And between the motif of childness, uh, childlessness and the parents being older and the appearance of an angel and what we're told that he is not going to drink wine or strong drink, and it's going to be empowered by the spirit and people bursting forth in poetry in response to the good news of the birth of this child. All of these things are found in a number of infancy stories, but in particular, a couple that are closely connected to this one. And so a lot of scholars, certainly the majority, think that Luke simply took those earlier stories and wanted to highlight the importance of John and Jesus. And so he used them as his template and made his own variation on the themes or. And Luke certainly is doing that, but he may have been doing that because there was an actual resemblance. And just as we know that people sometimes recast history or invent stories about famous people based on scripture in order to connect them with sacred ideas and images, so to people look to scriptures and sacred texts and find inspiration in them and emulate them. And I'm going to suggest that maybe that's what happened in the case of Elizabeth with interesting consequences, perhaps for Zechariah and John. So the two most similar stories, and again, I won't read them, but I will show you where to find them and tell you a little bit about them. Uh, but one is the story of Hannah and her son Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1, a book that's named after him. And there too, we're told that Hannah was childless. Uh, in this case, she had uh, a competing wife, right? Her husband had another wife, perhaps married despite his apparent great love for Hannah because she was childless. And so he, he was trying to get an heir. We're told here too that he shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants. And it also adds, nor shall a razor touch his head. And so that indicates that Samuel is to be what's known as a Nazarite, 
And while a Nazarite was usually somebody who made a vow and said, I'm not going to touch any great products and I'm not going to cut my hair until such and such has happened or until I've fulfilled this promise or something like that. In the case of Samuel, and then also Samson, right, and his mother, uh, who's left unnamed in the story, as is often the case, unfortunately, with patriarchal texts. Uh, but in Judges 13, you can read the story about Samson, who is uh, not to drink wine or strong drink, and neither is his mother beforehand. And he, too, will be a Nazarite, and not just for a period of time, but throughout his life. And so in echoing that idea that John would not drink wine or strong drink, it's echoing not just these stories, but the detail that these children are to be Nazarites and to be lifelong Nazarites. And while it's not explicitly stated in the New Testament that John was a Nazarite, uh, interpreters down the ages understood that to be the case. So Luke's gospel echoes those earlier stories. And so I think rather than simply imagining Luke borrowing from them, I think we can envisage him uh, dealing with a situation in which Elizabeth might well have found inspiration in those stories and prayed as those women prayed for God to grant her a son and promising to God that if God grants her a son, then like those other children, she will dedicate her child to God in a similar way and that he will be a Nazarite. This is where things get interesting. Hopefully you thought it was interesting already, but I'll bet you never noticed this because I will be honest, I didn't notice this connection before I started digging into the story of John and some of these details. The Nazarite is not allowed to cut his hair. A priest, we're told, must keep his hair trimmed. Uh, it says it three times in Leviticus that their hair is to be the opposite of whatever it is that it says about the Nazarite. And you'll find that sometimes it's translated as you know, uncropped, sometimes it's translated as unkempt or you know, disheveled or something like that. Uh, Ezekiel is even clearer in saying you know, they're not to let their locks grow long. That's in his depiction of his ideal uh, his future temple. But if we look at rabbinic literature, right, it understands all of these texts, not just in a theoretical future, but as a rule in the present to apply to priests and to mean that priests must trim their hair. In fact, there's a rabbinic text that says they had to get a haircut basically once a month, every 30 days. Do you see the dilemma? John could not be a Nazarite and be a priest at the same time. So what happens then? Zechariah presumably is longing for a son who will not just be a son in addition to the family, but will follow in his footsteps. But Elizabeth's vow has committed her son to be dedicated to a different course, a different way of life. And so Zechariah may have been tempted to annul uh, Elizabeth's vow, uh, or may have asked John later in life to simply ignore his mother's vow, right? I mean, why should, yeah, it's, it's Elizabeth's problem and be it on her head. 
it's interesting that Luke tells us that Zechariah became mute at right this time. And so maybe he was unable to challenge her vow in the way that Numbers 30 allowed. Uh, it became a moot or rather a mute point. If Zechariah asked John to forsake his mother's commitment and instead follow in his father's footsteps as an obedient son ought to, that would have put John in the position of having to choose between honoring his father and honoring his mother. And the commandment, one of the top 10 uh, famously, required that one honor one's father and mother. And so what do you do if honoring father and honoring mother uh, comes into conflict? So one of the features of this book that I've begun working on is bringing the Mandaean sources into the picture. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But the other thing that is a major new feature in this book is recognizing that because Jesus was part of John's movement, maybe even his, we should call him his, John's disciple at one point, we can look at Jesus' life, his teaching, his practice of baptism, his ethics, his emphases, and use them to fill in some of the things that John emphasized. And it may be that it was from John that Jesus got his treatment of the potential for making a vow and honoring parents to con conflict. And we see that in Mark chapter 7, verse 11. And so one possibility is that there was actually a historical connection that led Luke to depict John in the same template as these earlier figures. And it may be that Zechariah asking John to uh, honor his father over against his mother uh, set him on a course that actually led him away from home, presumably keeping his mother, siding with his mother over against his father on this point, and away from the priesthood into something that actually opposed it. Now, he may also have been influenced by other critiques of the temple and priesthood in his time. Uh, it's been suggested that John may have been influenced by the Dead Sea Scrolls and Qumran, and those sorts of things. And yet we don't find any of the specific criticisms of the priesthood uh, that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, attributed to John. And so if that comes along and is an influence on John, I think it's only a later one. The fact that John is active in Samaria and associated with Samaritans might also be a factor, right? The Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim. And so recognizing that there could be more than one place of worship, uh, that there were competing claims, that too might be part of the picture. I think there's, there are also things which, again, when we look at what John emphasized and what Jesus emphasized, might help us to understand these things. And so, John emphasizes social justice, economic justice, right? How one treats the poor, uh, not having two cloaks while somebody else doesn't have one. Uh, when we put together John and Jesus, uh, the interest in the temple, the poor, the disabled, it's interesting that the gospels are full of stories of people begging near the temple, people in need of healing near the temple. And so I suspect that John and Jesus both saw that there was this strange state of affairs at this place that was supposed to provide forgiveness, uh, had these people who were uh, 
in dire straits of one sort or another, right in its vicinity. And it's interesting that a figure named Murier, she's a, a key leader in Mandaism, uh, even depicted as a priest herself. Uh, according to the Mandaian Book of John, uh, she worked sweeping and washing the temple and described it as a house in which there is no stability, no support for the poor, no refreshment for tortured souls. And so critique of the temple seems to be something that we find in both uh, the early Christian sources connected with John and in uh, Mandaian sources. And so various other influences may have been a factor, but I think it was probably John's family experience that uh, may have primed him to then be open to these other things. So in terms of John's insights, I think these things would have given him an awareness of, of the limits and the imperfections of scripture, right? It's humanness. He would have seen that commandments can conflict, right? And that's something that Jesus also addresses. Uh, he would have seen that there were tensions and contradictions. And so when Jesus later on says things like, yeah, Moses, you know, let you do this because of the hardness of your hearts, but that wasn't what God wanted sort of in creation. Uh, that idea that scripture might be an imperfect uh, reflection of the divine will uh, or reflect human, you know, human shortcomings. I think all that doesn't come originally from Jesus, but comes from John. And that this, these formative experiences may have helped him to become aware of these things. In addition to some of the things I've mentioned, right, the limits and imperfections of the temple became aware of John. Right? With his emphasis on social and economic justice, he would have been aware that some people can afford forgiveness and to seek forgiveness through sacrifice in a way that others cannot, at least not as easily. He would have been aware that there was an, a geographic inequity of access to the temple and thus to sacrifice and forgiveness in a way that hadn't been true in the earlier days of the tabernacle and things of that sort. And so his baptism offered an eschatological alternative to sacrifice, an end of the world, a kingdom of God alternative to sacrifice, something that people could obtain without cost, something that would provide forgiveness, something that certainly took inspiration from the Jewish scriptures, even as he recognized uh, some of their limitations, uh, seeing in places like the first chapter of Isaiah, how the prophet on the one hand expresses on behalf of God, dissatisfaction with the multitude of sacrifices, and on the other hand, calls on them to wash themselves clean uh, using the imagery of flowing water. So that's, John, and some of the insights that I've been working towards recently. And so presumably the question that you have for me now is, okay, but what does this have to do with Gnosticism? And of course, recognizing the uh, insufficiency, the inadequacy, the humanness of scripture and things, you know, the disjuncture at times between the supreme God and the, the limitations of scripture and things like that, all that's compatible with Gnosticism, but it's not distinctive of it. And so how do we get from there to some of the distinctive features of Gnosticism? How does John's family background, his view of the Torah and the temple, connect with figures like Dositheus? Does it connect with the Mandaeans and uh, the Sethians, right, who produced some of the texts found at Nag Hammadi, uh, Valentinians and others? 
to get to that point, we need to follow John not only into the wilderness, where he most famously spent time, uh, but into Samaria, as I've already hinted, and into Transjordan. And I have here a map right now, bring up another one in a second, that shows some of the diaspora of the Jewish people in this time period, the places to which Jews were scattered. And there's an importance to that. Because if we ask, where does Gnosticism emerge? Where are some of the key places associated with it? Um, the Nag Hammadi text, uh, Valentinianism, the Mandaeans and Mesopotamian Gnosticism. It's consistently in places that were at the edges of the realms to which Jews and Judeans, Israelites more generally, had scattered. Hold that thought, because we're going to come back to that, because I think that's crucial in figuring out where Gnosticism comes from. And one of the major tributaries, in addition to John the Baptist's emphases, that flows into this. I think that Jesus' vision for a reunion of 12 tribes, symbolized by his choice of 12 apostles, uh, was inherited from John. Right? John is active, not just in Judea, but in uh, Transjordan, where some of the Israelite tribes were, in Galilee, where the northern tribes had lived. And I think that that indicates that this is something that goes back to John, isn't just something that comes from Jesus. And his activity in these places at the geographic edges of sort of the Jewish heartland, I think would have poised him to intersect with some people who maintain some really ancient religious traditions. Traditions that go back to the era of the Israelite monarchy and the time before the exile. If you studied the biblical studies from an academic perspective, or even if you've just read uh, the accounts of ancient Israel closely, you'll be aware that throughout most of their history, uh, the Judeans, the Israelites, were not practitioners of monotheism. They worshipped a variety of deities, and it was only later that a major uh, either reformation or revolution took place. And while the scriptures of, of Judaism and Christianity depicted as a reformation, a return to something that the people always should have done, Historians conclude that, in fact, it was much more of a revolution, a, a major change in the practice of the religion. And so when you get the centralization of worship, the imposition of monotheism and of Torah, these things come along late in the picture. And we know that even after the composition of the Torah, the Pentateuch, there were still Judeans living in places like Elephantine, Egypt, who had their own temple and who maintained an earlier form of Israelite religion. Right? We, we find that there were uh, figures, you know, female divine figures who were worshiped there uh, and things of that sort. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's in the, it's at the extremities where the promulgation of the Torah and of monotheism and these changes to ancient Israelite religion and the emergence of Gnosticism, there's a very close correspondence geographically. 
And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that if we were to trace uh, these things, we'd find that there actually was a persistence of pre-exilic Israelite beliefs in some communities in these places. And in some places they may have simply never had something else imposed on them. In some places though, they may have had to fly under the radar. And I think they would have developed if they were uh, in a place close enough to where the Torah and monotheism were promulgated, they would have had to develop a strategy of uh, interpreting the Jewish scriptures subversively. Uh, they would have held a negative view of the elevation of one of the many gods of the pre period to the status, not simply of the supreme, but the only God. And that's going to match up with something that we find both in Mandayan sources and in the texts that were found at Nag Hammadi. So one of the really fascinating things about Mandayan sources, because these are Gnostic texts in a Semitic language, we have divine names included that seem to reflect the traditions of ancient Israel. Right? And so there are a number of light world or celestial beings in Mandaism, and they have names like Yashemin, Yokobar, Yusmir, Yuzatak, Yorba. And scholars, linguists think that these names come from the divine epithet Yah, right, Yahweh, uh, and one of the various sort of labels, right? So Yah of heaven, right? Yah the great, uh, things of that sort. And we find these sorts of divine names in, in the Hebrew Bible, and we find them uh, and variations on them, as well as ones with Baal and with Anat and other divine figures uh, mentioned in uh, the texts of surrounding peoples, ancient Canaanite texts, but also get a, an indication that they were there in ancient Israel. And so on the one hand, these things show up in Mandaean texts. And if we ask, how did they end up there? I think the natural answer to give is that one of the tributaries that flows into Mandaism is in fact pre-exilic ancient Israelite religion. But that needs to happen at a time well, around the time of John the Baptist, or maybe a bit later, maybe a bit earlier, but sometime in this period. Right? If we look at some of the Nag Hammadi texts, and we also find this motif in, in Mandayan texts, but you may know it from you know, the so-called Gnostic Gospels from Nag Hammadi, right, the ones that were found in Egypt, that the, create, the, the God who sort of organizes and is responsible for uh, the creation and uh, rule over the material world, which is viewed negatively. He says, I am God, there is no other, right? And it's a quote right from uh, the Jewish scriptures, something that the one God of the Jewish scriptures says. And in these Gnostic texts, that figure is uh, by superior divine beings who are like, yeah, you're right, you're the only one. That just shows how, how little you know. And so there's this mockery of the, uh, the, the creator deity. Uh, from that perspective. And I think that developed among people who were maintaining some of the traditions of ancient Israel uh, in response to the attempt to impose monotheism and the worship of this one God alone on them. And so these views 
clearly persisted somewhere, right? Because on the one hand, we have the text from Elephantine, right? Does go back to the fifth century uh, BC, and so uh, well before this time. But there's no reason to think that when their temple was destroyed, that they suddenly all just vanished. And on the other hand, we find these things in Mandaism, so they must have persisted and eventually be found in these texts that uh, we associate with Mesopotamia. And so the conclusion that I draw is that at the geographic margins of uh, where Torah was promulgated, you had a persistence of these earlier views and beliefs. And I think that in Transjordan and in Samaria and in some other places, John would have encountered people who held these views. Now, I'm not sure that he ever embraced these views, but that's not necessary for these two things to converge in the way that they do, right? So John, before Jesus took up the, took up the, uh, the mantle of doing likewise, uh, was looking for and reaching out to the lost sheep of Israel. And he may have been aware that there were uh, Transjordanian Israelites, there were Samaritans, there were uh, Edomites, right, who were uh, descendants of Abraham, even if not of Israel, and that many of these people worshipped in ways that he had been brought up to view negatively, and some of them he may still have viewed negatively, but he certainly was trying to find a way to incorporate all of Israel into his vision and to not make it one that was simply uh, for Judah or dominated by Judah, uh, even if all the tribes were included uh, in some subordinate fashion. And so as John engaged with these other centers of worship, as he held out a welcome mat for uh, the scattered tribes and people who held views that were denounced as unorthodox and called to them, uh, I think it may have brought some of these views that were maintained in secret and in isolated places out of the shadows, uh, would have called people out of these religious closets that they may have felt they were compelled to be in, and would have uh, led to them giving voice to their beliefs in ways that basically give the impetus to Gnosticism. And so what John brings to the picture, right, among other things, is a right that could replace sacrifice. And of course, these were people who had bristled not just at the imposition of uh, one deity um, and were eliminate, attempt to eliminate others that they had historically worshipped, but also the elimination of the practice of sacrifice in these various places. And so he brought them an alternative in the form of flowing water, living water. And I think John, given that we have the reference to the spirit descending and other things of that sort uh, in the story about Jesus' baptism. I think John practiced this not just as an alternative to sacrifice, but as a way of seeking a mystical connection with the divine, a transformative religious experience. And as we all know, religious experience can provide a powerhouse to ideas and lead from lead them to, to spread and take on new life and uh, catch on and be promulgated. So someone responded to John, held this negative view I was talking about of the Torah and the temple, resonated with his view of these things as imperfect, but went further in their criticism and critique of them. And as these things came together, uh, and as the, those who held these views engaged with other strands of Greco-Roman thought and philosophy, I think we witnessed in that moment and in that context 
the creation of a dynamic new religiousism. Uh, whether you like that label or not, it's it's one that certainly fits the Mandaeans. Um, Mandalay, right, that from, from the term comes. It, it usually is understood to mean knowledge of life. And so they literally, Mandaeans literally are Gnostics. Whether John foresaw or intended this is another question. And so let me conclude, um, and then we'll have time for questions, by emphasizing some of the lasting legacy of John in Gnosticism and in Christianity more broadly, uh, but also in non-Christian Gnosticism in the form of Mandaism. And so John emphasized, as scholars do and uh, progressive religious people do, the humanness of scripture, right? That there's goodness in it. Uh, there's, it's not to simply be discarded, but it's, it's not infallible. It's not inerrant. He recognized the insufficiency of ancestry and of group membership, and certainly finding the diversity of religious views among the descendants of Abraham in these diverse places uh, probably would have emphasized that to him. He emphasized social and economic justice, and that's a legacy that uh, is no less relevant today than it was in John's time. Uh, he clearly was happy to critique leaders and institutions, uh, may have started with his own father, interestingly enough, uh, as we fill in that family portrait. I think he was concerned with inclusivity, right? The, his reaching out to 12 tribes and perhaps even more broadly than that. And accessibility, right? The fact that not everyone had equal access to religious institutions, to means of forgiveness and things of that sort. And of course, his emphasis on repentance and personal transformation. And so I think that when we look at the story of John's childhood, when we look at the stories of his infancy, when we're open to the possibility that there might be some historical tidbits um, woven into the fabric of this highly symbolic narrative, I think we find that there's not just a, a plausible scenario that unfolds, but we actually get to see some things that might help us to understand what it was that inspired John to court, chart the course that he did uh, to develop a ritual that offered an alternative means of forgiveness and how it was that some of John's emphases uh, found their way not just into what became uh, Orthodox Christianity, but into Gnosticism and how uh, John's openness to the remnants of those uh, tribes uh, at the margins of uh, Judean influence and of the spread of Torah and things of that sort would have created not just a num not just uh, a vibrant new religious tradition, but more than one uh, in Christianity, in Gnosticism, as we find in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Uh, we see that John's movement gives birth to not just one, but to many uh, different forms of spirituality and of practice that continue to make an impact right down to the present day. And we see that legacy, not least in the apostolic Johannite church, which looks to John the Baptist, as well as another John, uh, and takes their name from him. And so hopefully this exploration of John the Baptist, his influence, his legacy, uh, was interesting to you, and I 
appreciate your time and I'm interested to hear what a group that holds John in such high esteem uh, thinks of some of the ideas that I've floated today. Thank you. Thank you. That was excellent. Um, I do have I do have comments aplenty. I don't know if I have a question. I mean, we 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 joke at Conclave, you know, that it's the general, you know, statements in the form of a question. So I'm not going to pretend to have a question. It's just, um, but uh, you know, I do have some thoughts and some uh, uh, statements. Um, there's a couple things. I mean, I'm a big fan of theories, and I'm a big fan of, you know, pushing the the brain out to what's possible and kind of, I guess. There, there's a there's a certain thing around this time period that I mean we're we're slowly filling in the gaps, but particularly when you deal with the Johns, when you deal with the idea of a, a community around the Baptist, and of course a community around the the beloved disciple, that the you know like water taking the the shape of its container, we can't necessarily see the water, but we can see the container, so we can get kind of an implication of what the substance inside looks like, and so. Uh, so there are, there are two theories or there are two things, you know, one old, one new that I see connecting to some of the ideas that you talked about. I mean, for me, it was a couple of light bulb moments and I might just be doing the thing that I'm historically famous for, which is being, a uh, uh, you know, a shameless eisegete, I guess. Um, but I, uh, you know, so there are two, there are two theories or hypotheses around the, around the, the Johns that immediately come to mind as you were going through your presentation. Um, number one is you've got our, you've got our favorite old, uh, uh, theory, you know, now half a century old, of course, that comes from Raymond Brown about the community of the beloved disciple. And eventually that community splits into one that goes with, the great church, so-called, like the, the proto-Orthodox, proto-Catholic church, and the one that eventually becomes uh, docetist and uh, Gnostic uh, eventually. So in that, in that, what jumped out to me in, in your presentation, in your notes, your talk, um, is that Brown's theory posits that at some point uh, into the community of the beloved disciple comes a group of folks that are essentially, he posits the influence of uh, um, Hellenized Judaism, uh, Samaritanism, and, uh, you know, and an anti-temple bias that brings with it some ideas of like universal salvation, uh, worship decentralized from, from the temple, um, new forms of, new forms of, of worship, perhaps the, the, the Eucharist. Uh, that type of thing, and basically, he doesn't he doesn't say it, but the implication of uh, Samaritans and, and uh, Greek ideas and, and Hellenized Jews kind of implies a uh, you know either a, a parallel tradition or a pre-exilic uh, tradition that gets injected into the community of the beloved disciple John the Apostle, right? And uh, and I found the 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 mention when you when you had the section talking about uh, the Baptist uh, looking for and dealing with the lost sheep that a lot of these groups track with the groups that uh, Brown theorized were kind of injecting their ideas into a later community that formed around the apostle. And I mean, we know as best as we can know, and who knows, my stuff may be out of date because everything is out of date. I mean, I do seminary stuff for our students. So me keeping up on the latest thing is not exactly easy to uh, do, but I mean, we know or can reasonably assume that John the Apostle, in addition to Jesus, of course, 
came out of John the Baptist's community, right? So there's there's some possible transfers of ideas there. And the other thing, the more modern theory that seems to, uh, um, or a more modern theory that seems to dovetail with some of this, of course, is the infamous brain virus of Margaret Barker, uh, and the and the uh, and the idea of temple theology of of kind of uh, you know making a, an en passant of sorts around the second temple to maintain an older uh, to maintain or restore uh, an older uh, uh, Jewish tradition or pre-exilic uh, uh, tradition, something that's lost after the reforms, and that the essential ideas and kind of cosmology of it gets injected into what we now know as Christian, Christian liturgy. So the, I guess that's a long series of statements. It's just for me, the, 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 the thing that I found remarkable about your presentation, and I may be reading into it too much, but at this point, I don't even care. The, the, the uh, is this seems to plug the hole where those two or three things meet. Yes, I think I mean, that is that, is that crazy, <laughs> right? Um, I don't think so. Uh, and on the one hand, you know, I was very open to, you know, Raymond Brown's uh, reconstruction, uh, certainly in, in broad outline and very influenced by it in my own work on the Gospel of John. Uh, I was initially very, you know, I was, I was really intrigued and thought it was really creative, but initially was you know, really rather resistant to Margaret Barker's suggestion that all this pre-exilic stuff was sort of percolating up seemingly everywhere in, you know, all Jewish and Christian things. Uh, I'm, as you might gather, I'm more open to that now than uh, I once yeah. was. And I certainly, you know, I, I'm not sure how, how widespread, you know, how much it's, you know, it, it, it is felt in the details of Christian liturgy, for instance, and, you know, some of the details and specifics. But, I mean, I think the key thing is that I think some of what uh, Barker detects, what Brown detects, and associate, you know, in particular with Christianity, uh, at least when you put the two together, goes back to John, right? I mean, we have, yeah. on the one hand, we have the Mandaeans who are Gnostics and, you know, not particularly fond of Jesus, suggesting that Gnosticism, you know, is not a distinctively Christian thing. Although if they were the odd ones out, then I'd say, well, you know, they're just, yeah, somebody was bound to do it that wasn't Christian. But we also have those uh, texts from Nag Hammadi, the, you know, uh, particularly the Sethian ones that, uh, some some of which seem to be at least lightly Christianized, some of which seem like they don't have anything specifically Christian in them at all. And so between that and the fact that, you know, the early church associated uh, the origins of Gnosticism with people connected with John the Baptist movement, uh, that's often been dismissed as, you know, well, you know, these church fathers, are, you know, polemicizing and, you know, we can't trust them and things like that. But Sometimes, you know, behind the polemic, there's there's at least a grain of, of truth. And I think I, I, th I think some of these threads do genuinely seem to start to meet and converge. And I think Brown, Barker, and a number of others have seen some of the instances where they converge. And I think when we when we trace them not to the Gospel of John, not to you know this, that, the other place, but in particular around, you know, at least John the Baptist and his entourage, uh, then I think some of them will will intersect and uh, turn out to actually be just one thread. Um, 
as as we as we dig deeper into it. Yeah, I was going to mention I, I do call Barker the brain virus, as as a, a few of us do. There's a, there's a sort of kind of you know like Foucault's pen, pendulum and the Templars, where you know if you're not if you're not careful. Um, you know, you'll begin seeing temple theology ever, you know, like that quote, you know, sooner or later, you know, the, the nut job brings up the Templars is, is roughly the, the echo quote, uh, as I recall it. And, you know, so it, it can be, it can be a little, you know, whatever to begin kind of seeing temple theology everywhere where perhaps it, it might not be. Um, but at the same time, I think this is, this is why, uh, uh, you know, I found your, your talk, so fascinating because it seems to it seems to give a little bit, uh, you know, more shape to the kind of astral or ethereal kind of unknown in the middle area where all these things sort of dance around. Um, I'll say it's uh, definitely there. Whether it's yeah. everywhere is a different question, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, always. Yeah. Uh, 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 Will, you had a question. Yeah, I've got to unmute myself. I, I always forget to do that. Um, first of all, I just wanted to say uh, thank you to Dr. McGrath for just an amazing presentation. And um, it was sort of interesting that that for me, uh, listening to uh, His Eminence talk about sort of light bulb moments. Uh, for me, the light bulb moment was the idea that John the Baptist is referred to as John the Baptist that that's something extraordinary that there's there you know this this he isn't just participating in a tradition that has gone back and we do ablutions and we do you know immersing people in water for ritual purity and i, I find that very very striking because in the ajc we largely look to or at least i largely look to john as the symbol of continuity with an older tradition Right. Um, if we look at at John the Baptist and Jesus and and John the uh, the apostle, I sort of look at them as sort of past, present, future. Right. That there's there's the connection to this older tradition. But what I found really fascinating here is that if I'm reading this correctly, John represents uh, John the Baptist represents a kind of rupture in that tradition that that there's a, a that that represents a moment of disconnect from from some of this what we would consider to be the sort of more or less orthodox uh post-exilic uh jewish tradition and i found that tension really sort of productive right that that my my brain started to go into a number of different places and so i i just wanted i don't so much have a question so much as i just wanted to make sure that i was on the right track in thinking of John as marking this sort of rupture with, with a previous tradition. I was just going to uh, toss in that uh, you know I oh sorry go ahead yeah go ahead uh, I was just going to say I see the the whole you know uh, you know we have you know you you had uh, one of the AJC logos at the at the front spot of your uh, uh, slides where it has the Trinity like form and that spells out a j and c but it's also got three j's in there and uh you know and, and folks have asked us if that's intentional we just tell them uh you know it, it is even if it wasn't but it kind of it kind of works out that way 
And so I've always kind of seen the, you know, John, Jesus and John as a kind of continuum, much in the way that uh, uh, William has mentioned as a, as a past, present and future. But there's also a kind of, uh, you know, uh, in that order, what you do, why you do it and how it gets done in terms of the, the characteristics of those, of those three figures that the, that John the Baptist kind of represents the, the what, the, you know, the, the, uh, the initiation, the, the, the new way, uh, uh, Jesus, you know, represents the why, you know, in, in terms of ultimate, ultimate purpose, you know, the incarnation of the infinite into the finite and John the apostle, of course, who's, uh, you know, uh, language, um, you know, is centered on love, even though there's also a lot of, you know, light and dark and in and out in the Gospel of John, but whose message is centered on love is you you get the how, right? So, um, you know, I've seen them kind of both as a continuum, but also as kind of, I guess, facets uh, on, uh, on a jewel. And we've spent so much time um, as a community, uh, you know, kind of looking at two of them, and we were really, really overdue for, for a look at the third. And uh, I think this really, really hit the mark. Yeah, well, coming, coming back to uh, the, the, the point about John as sort of rupture and you know, the point whether he's a, a figure of continuity or discontinuity or both, I think that some of the sort of temple criticism that we get, you know, Jesus' temple action, uh, the things that Stephen says in the book of Acts, things like that, uh, probably reflect the influence of John's teaching on early, Christ early Christianity or what becomes early Christianity. And so if we look at, you know, Stephen's speech, for instance, uh, it's, it's a theme that we get in a number of places in early Christian literature. It's like, <clears throat> yeah, our forefathers built a temple, but who said God wants a temple, right? God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. And that language of made with human hands is, of course, you know, sort of hinting that it's it's idolatrous. Uh, but it, it fixes the place of worship, whereas the tabernacle right, could move around and could do other things. The ark could move around. And so I think John probably, you know, even as he was challenging a, a centuries-old institution, might have viewed himself as reviving uh, a criticism that was even older, and whether he really was, and whether you know who some 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 I think agreed that he was, and some would have said, yeah, no, we don't buy it. Um, and of course, that's uh, that's a perennial <laughs> a perennial experience of those who, uh, as is inevitably the case, are both continuous and discontinuous at the same time, right? As they seek to do something innovative within the context of a tradition or a religious uh, a religious framework yeah I, I i you probably saw my head sort of you know bobbing up and down as, as as you were talking because um this idea that that oh i'm not doing something new i'm recovering something very very old right that 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 move is one that we see with with some frequency Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think even, you know, you look at somebody like Martin Luther, right, who says, oh, I'm not, I'm not reforming the church, right? I'm, I'm just bringing it back to its original state of purity. Um, and I think that, that you're speaking directly to this sort of continuity and discontinuity in one in the same breath. So thank you very much. Thank you. No, these thoughts are really helpful.
Jonathan, I know he's got a question. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got one. Hi, Dr. McGrath. Um, Hi. Thanks for the awesome uh, presentation, which I think is, is of course, very scholarly uh, uh, based, gives a lot uh, uh, for us nerds out there to chew on. But, but I think theologically, for, for modern Joanites, uh, modern Joanites, uh, I, I think that your talk was, was incredibly helpful, incredibly powerful for us, you know, centering the Baptist and really seeing where he's original, where he's vibrant, where, of course, he's relevant today with these issues about inclusion, about justice uh, uh, and some of the theological thoughts. So, so thanks so much for that. On to the question. Actually, actually, I have two, but but one is, you know, you mentioned the the, the baptism as possibly a replacement for for temple sacrifice. So I think, you know, that there's there's a theory that the Eucharist in Christian communities is is sort of um, a, a replacement for for the temple sacrifice. It, it's a form of sacrifice, um, but uh, we have this tension in the Christian um, gospels uh, there in the Christian Bible, where. Um, uh, you know, it, it says something like uh, when we're talking about John the Baptist, you know, John the Baptist uh, came to 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 baptize for the remission of sin. Right. So we sort of have this idea of being purified. Right. And and Paul, baptism for him seems to be sort of uh, connected to, to life and death. You, you actually sort of die in the water and then you, you in, uh, come back to a new life, being united with the Christ of the Logos. And, and what's very curious about Paul's idea, which, of course, is very early, earlier than what we see in, written down in the Gospels, at least, is that is we sort of have a tie-in with sacrifice in a weird way, right? Because we still have that this death in life. So I, to make a long story short, like, you know, you mentioned that you, had, you sort of have this, this theory or this idea that, about the mystical meanings of, uh, of, John's, of John's baptism. Do you think the original one was a sort of death to life? Do you think it was always about washing away sins or, or what you kind of see there in, in, in what's going on with the symbolism, the meaning, what maybe what people were experiencing internally, you know, having religious experiences in their baptisms and such? Yeah. Um, thank you, John, for a great question. I I certainly think that the idea that uh, baptism involves sort of a, a mystical communion with uh, with Jesus in his death and resurrection is uh, a Christian innovation and not what uh, John the Baptist had in mind. Uh, whether uh, death and rebirth, you know, was part of the symbolism is an interesting question. You know, whether there's you know overtones of a second exodus, you know, has also been suggested and things like that, uh, whether it was any and all of the above, you know, uh, uh, there's a number of possibilities. Uh, certainly for, for the Mandaeans, the fact that ultimately, you know, flowing water in general, but you know, the, the Jordan in particular uh, stems from, from the world above. I, th I think that John may have connected that with you know, a number of points of imagery in the scriptures uh, have particularly found myself wondering whether uh, the temple vision that Ezekiel has right towards the end of the book of Ezekiel, where you have sort of sacrifice in what some thought of, you know, might've been not a, a perfect temple that people would build in the future, but a, a sort of a heavenly temple, uh, Water then flows out from under the altar and brings life, you know, to all the world around and things like that. And so, uh, it's—I'm still working on trying to figure out which which of these many possibilities I think is prominent, or whether I think John was just a yeah, all of the above sort of person. Uh, but one thing I I do note is that for the Mandaeans, and I think for John, 
as was the case for sacrifice, I think baptism was something that you did repeatedly and something that you did, you know, as often as you felt the need to, but sort of um, periodically. And I think that when we realize that or when we conclude that in relation to John's baptism and presumably Jesus' baptism as he practiced it, you know, sort of during his public activity uh, as a promoter of John's movement, when Christians turn it into a once-for-all conversion rite, right, this, this one-time thing, they immediately confront the problem of what happens with post-baptismal sin. And that becomes a, a major point of contention and controversy and a dilemma for early Christian writings, right? And you know, get the Shepherd of Hermas and others who are, are, are worrying about this um, in the subsequent centuries. And I think that kind of thing where, where suddenly it's like, okay, you know, this, this ritual that's quite central to what we're doing seems to have this implication that apparently nobody thought of and we're not sure what to do about it. Um, I think that's a good clue that, you know, something has been sort of changed or reinterpreted. And uh, I think that for John, it was, it was something that one could do, one could do more than once, uh, much like, much like sacrifice. Awesome. Thanks so much. And, and I guess for, for my second question, and, you know, I, I can sort of guess where, where you lie and, and you touched on it a little bit, but, you know, there's scholarly debate about the, the Mandaeans' origins. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's sort of like three things I'd like to quickly throw at you if you could kind of tell me what, what your recreation is. But, but there's, there's one recreation that there, that there are much later movement, possibly from the time of Islam, that they're indigenous to, you know, what is now Iraq and Iran, right? And that they're, they're kind of, formulating their beliefs from contact with groups from around them, but also like basically adopting John as, as a counter figure to Muhammad and Jesus, right? They, they don't really like the um, what's going on with the with the with the Muslims and Christians around them. So they're, they're sort of adopting this this figure as a as a figure of protest. Then sort of the, the other theory and maybe that you kind of touched on is, is maybe the, the sort of Barker thesis of, 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 of a very ancient uh, Judean colony, uh, group of exiles, uh, leftover uh, exiles in Babylon, people who, who left uh, Israel and uh, Judea, you know, a, a long time ago carrying on the, these first temples. So that that's another one. And th then the third is... Um, the Mandaeans are are really are, are really the descendants of of a group that 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 has to leave Israel around the, the destruction of the temple because of the destruction of the temple because of the war and and I think it's April DeConnick that that the sort of um, is, is a big fan of this theory uh, it even says that they're the prophetess that you mentioned Marian Marian however you pronounce her name she's actually leading them out, out of Israel to um, uh, 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 to what's now uh, Iraq and Iran, and and I think with that with that recreation, we we have a, a much stronger continuity. You know, you can really kind of picture people who were part of John's community, maybe even the first generation part of John's community, um, uh, uh, might have actually known him. You know, joining up and following her. So, so, so I was wondering if you can kind of tell us, you know, what what your recreation is of, for the origins of, of the Mantians. Thank you, John. That's a great question. Uh, <clears throat> Unless I'm mistaken, the, 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 the real promoter of the view that you know, Mandaean sources uh, really are irrelevant to New Testament study, I think was his, his main emphasis. Uh, but for this reason, uh, I think it was C.H. Dodd in particular. Uh, there may have been somebody else who influenced him, but he uh, certainly in his uh, interpretation of the fourth gospel suggested, you know, well, maybe they borrow John in order to kind of 
get in with the uh, Islamic authorities and things like that. And there are a number of reasons why uh, scholars of Mandaism, for the most part, find that implausible. Uh, one is that we have Mandaian texts that don't have Arabic loan words, right? And that's really not found in uh, Aramaic-speaking communities and their literature after uh, the rise of Islam and after you know the Arab conquest and after this becomes you know Arabic becomes the dominant uh, language in the region, right? Uh, when you have related languages, right? They're both, both Semitic languages. When you have uh, a dominant language that is related to your own, the, the interference is almost inevitable, um, very hard to resist. Uh, and so the fact that we have, we have this is, is an indication. Uh, I mean, there are, there are things in the Mandaean texts that mention Islam, but they also, in some of them at least, I mean, there's a great example in the Mandaean Book of John that I think illustrates it. Uh, they often look like they are you know, interpolations or you know, later parts of the, the, the process of forming this literature. Uh, in the process of working on the uh, critical edition, uh, the linguist I worked with, Charles Heverell of Rutgers University, uh, did an analysis of sort of each of these chapters of the Mendai Book of John, and he found that they are linguistically different, right? And so in their places in Iran, where at least until very recently, um, not sure if anyone's still there who's maintaining this, but there have been modern spoken you know, dialect of Mandaic, you know, Mandaic uh, that persisted there. Uh, very, very small numbers, but they were there. And if we look at the later spoken language, and then we look at sort of ancient Syriac, you know, gospels and things like that, and look at the change in Aramaic grammar over the centuries, there are places where the grammar is much more like the older and somewhere it's much more like the more recent and some that seem to be in between. <clears throat> and so, there are, there are linguistic, uh, historical, and other arguments that simply you know, don't you know, suggest that this, this just doesn't work as an explanation for Mandaism. Uh, borrowing John the Baptist while denigrating Jesus and Muhammad, not a great way to fly under the radar of you know, Islamic authorities and to get on well with them. Um, if they're inventing it for the first time, then, you know, why not say complimentary things about uh, other prophets in that tradition, you know? Uh, and so there too, there's, you know, there, there's a problematic issue. Uh, some of the things that the Mandaeans say about the encounter with Islam suggest that they did actually present sort of a text to them. Uh, another thing that's worth considering is the fact that the Mandaeans are the most plausible candidates to be the Sabians who are mentioned in the Quran, right? Sabun means uh, immersers or baptizers. And so if that's the case, then that suggests that you know, the Mandaism is pre-Quranic. Uh, there are also other things like the, um, the uh, Coptic Psalms of Thomas, right? The Manichaean uh, texts, which clearly borrow from Mandaeans. And so if those go back to Thomas, uh, who was sort of the one of the co-workers, the uh, people sent out by Mani himself, then that too would put us back before the rise of Islam. So when you put all this together, it seems likely that they're pre-Islamic. How much earlier is another question and where they come about, right? Because you can be, you can emerge from a Jewish context in Judea or in, you know, 
Transjordan or in Mesopotamia, right? And they might have moved, well, you know, from one to the other at some point, maybe after the destruction of Jerusalem, and yet still not have kind of divulged the sort of the the more esoteric views uh, that they held or some things like that. Um, that may be one reason why they had this distinctive alphabet that they used, right, which has no secular usage, right? It's only used for uh, incantation bowls and for Mendian sacred texts. And so it may be that this was part of their tradition being esoteric, right? They, they didn't speak a different language compared to their Jewish neighbors. Uh, They're part of the same community. They just had beliefs that they didn't, uh, they didn't want the mainstream authorities in the synagogue to know about, right? Uh, denigrating the God that everybody else is praising and things of that sort. Uh, not, again, not the way to get on well with uh, the leaders of their community, if that's what you're aiming to do. And so I've, I've also argued, and I'll just direct you to uh, a paper, which I think is available online. If not, I will uh, send it to you or share it with anyone who's interested. Um, and I did put my contact information in the chat. But other than places in Mesopotamia, Jerusalem and its its context and you know, the Jordan River Valley are the only places that get a lot of attention in Mendian literature. And in fact, they get more attention than arguably any place else. Uh, Jerusalem is mentioned more in Mandaean texts than in like the Babylonian Talmud, uh, if you talk about like proportionally. And so it seems to me that for a group to have this much focus on Jerusalem and yet have originated in Mesopotamia and be unrelated to uh, deep roots in the vicinity of Jerusalem and you know that, that at least that sort of context, the context of, of where Jerusalem was the uh, the, the the center of thing. I, I don't I don't think that works plausibly. Um, it's not it's not absolute proof, but history deals in probabilities, and I think it's it's far less probable that Jerusalem, yeah, they just decide to make it central while living in Mesopotamia than that uh, they actually have a historical connection with that part of the world. And once you say that, uh, the connection with John the Baptist becomes entirely plausible. The key question is whether they held the views that we now find in their literature and uh, rituals and tradition when they were part of John's movement. And just as one can say that, you know, maybe Jesus was not himself uh, somebody who promoted all the views that you find in the Nag Hammadi literature, right? And yet there's still a, a connection, right? A historical connection that takes you step-by-step step from Jesus to that, you know, that development of of uh, what he said and did, uh, the same might be true of John, right? And so you don't have to think that John, John was himself a Mandaean, espoused uh, all the tenets and practices of later Mandaism, specifically, or Gnosticism in general, in order for there to be a historical connection. Cool, thank you. And with that, we're going to wrap up so we have enough time for people to take five minutes before we jump into our, our next thing. Um, yeah, let me reiterate uh, on behalf of all of us, that was an excellent talk. And uh, I'm, I'm looking, you've given me a lot to chew on and I'm, I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, oh, I thought there was a hand up. It was a clapping thing. I'm getting used to technology. Damn kids. Um, yeah, that was really fantastic. And I think I, 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 I think uh, 
the book is going to become a fixture, not only on my bookshelf, um, but we're probably going to force it on all our seminarians as well, because I think it, uh, it, it plugs a much needed hole of consideration, not only, not only, uh, uh, you know, in general with religious and biblical studies, but also, you know, in terms of the focus and symbology of the AJC in specific. So thank you kindly. That was excellent. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here with you. Thank you for the enthusiastic uh, reception and the interesting questions and comments. And uh, for those of you who are continuing to mull these things, um, I'm continuing to mull them as I work on the book. And so you know, please do stay in touch and feel free to share your further thoughts and comments uh, if you have any. Thank Thanks you. So. Thank you.